and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg hosted the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch Dispatch Media. Um, uh, this is the conclusion of Noah Week, uh, um, and although my name is not Noah, I often get called Noah. There's something about the name Jonah. It happens less and less, I think, because Jonah is becoming a more popular name out there. Um, but the there's something about my name that is never really computed with a lot of people. Um, first of all, a lot of people just think it's Joanna or Jana. Um, long before Starbucks started, I, when I go to Starbucks, I just say my name is John because I can't, the, 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 Jonah just doesn't work. But it's amazing when I'll talk to people on the phone and I'll say my name is Jonah and they'll be like Joanna. Um, or if they call me and they see the name Jonah on the paperwork, um, they'll just assume I'm female and I don't want to get into the gender binary stuff, but I don't think my voice is particularly feminine. And even though I'm talking for minutes at a time, they'll still say Ms. Um, or Miss. And, uh, my, um, my subscription to National Review, the print magazine, for over 20 years now, um, I have fought a losing battle to get them to change my name on the address label from Johan um, to Jonah. And the amazing thing is every couple of years I would succeed and it would start coming to Jonah Goldberg. And then like six months later, it would revert back to Johan. That's a total mystery to me. Um, but lots of people had never heard the name, don't know the name. Some people think who have a nautical background think it's bad luck um, or whatever, but, uh, and maybe because of the nautical tie-in, some people's brains would go to Noah and I would get called Noah Goldberg a lot. Um, but anyway, it's the end of Noah week because the two guests on the podcast this week were Noah Phillips and Noah Rothman. I thought they were both good conversations. I also recorded um, an episode with, David Bernstein, which will probably air next week. It's, it was a ordeal recording it because his Wi-Fi was very, very poor where he was. He was visiting family members. And, um, and so the hope is it all recorded fine. We use this new platform called Riverside that um, records all the audio locally. So it should all be sound fine. I'll be really impressed if it does, um, because it was it was a bit of an ordeal. Anyway, I'm assuming that the vast majority of you do not care about this one way or the other, and um, you're someone is actually shouting uh, enough with the throat clearing already. So enough with the throat clearing already. It is Friday morning. Um, it is it is a it's like, you know, some ancient fantasy faith type things believe that the world lived in a, you know, in a giant's eye. Um, well, DC feels like uh, we all live in a giant's armpit. Uh, it's really gross these days. It's equatorial. Um, and uh, so where to begin? I don't know. Um Dana Milbank, who I do not make a habit of reading regularly, but he, they were talking about his column on TV this morning, and um, I thought it was a it, it's a it's an interesting. I don't think it's an interesting argument. Like it's a fairly conventional column, um, but I think it's interesting what he kind of overlooks. Um, so Dana Milbank writes this column called "I Know This Is Shocking." Uh, give Biden a break. And it is basically, um, and I think he makes a really fine point in that uh, there are all these stories about, you know, all these Dems and disarray stories about how Democrats are having a hard time and they're turning on the White House. And, you know, the, Isaac DeVore had a really great one for CNN the other day. Um, uh, lots of circular firing squad, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And the, the, 
the brick bricks that brick bats that people are throwing at Biden are often like, you know, he's not speaking out forcefully enough on this. He's not speaking out forcefully enough on that. And, um, and Milbank's point in the Washington Post is actually he is, he's, he said all the things that people want him to say, or that progressives want him to say about the Dobbs decision, about guns, about voting rights and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and then when he actually says some of those things, Democrats say, oh, that's too extreme. You're going too far. Maybe you shouldn't have said it's Jim Crow 2.0, blah, 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 blah. And um, it's a perfectly, for a partisan column in defense of Joe Biden, it's a perfectly fine argument about how uh, Joe Biden is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. It's, a, it's an age-old age form of uh, uh, carrying water for a politician, and it's totally fine. The thing I think is interesting, which he doesn't really get into, um, it's not in any depth, is why it seems like Biden isn't saying the right things. Um, and I think he's right. He actually does say these things, but it just, it's, it's like, um, it's not quite a tree falling in the woods, um, with no one there to hear it, but, um, it's really, really ineffectual. And I think this is the problem. I, I have more pity and sympathy for Joe Biden than I do anger. All the people who get really like angry whenever you try to say that Joe Biden's a nice guy or um, a fairly decent guy, they get furious. And they point out all sorts of terrible things that Joe Biden has done. And Joe Biden has done terrible things of the sort that a lot of craven politicians have done. You know, I mean, I thought his he brags about his treatment of Judge Bork. I thought it was utterly dishonorable. Um, I, you know, people got mad at Mitt Romney recently for an essay in which he said that that Biden's a decent guy, and people pointed out, you know, fairly as far as the rules of these things go, uh, that Biden said some terrible things about Romney, including that you know Romney and Paul Ryan wanted to put black people back in chains, um, which I think is disgusting and demagogic and all of that. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to defend him in any great sense. Um, I think he's a pretty craven politician who has never a profile of cur in courage on, on anything of, of real significance. Um, he's always sort of calculating um, where to be as, as, said a zillion times on this podcast and on others, you know, the whole myth of Biden as a centrist uh, misses that he used to, he was never a centrist in the sense of being on the, in the middle of the spectrum between the two parties. Um, he was a centrist in the sense that he was a different splitter between the two extremes of the Democratic Party. So as the Democratic Party has moved leftward, he moved leftward. Um, and in some ways, I think it's worse, uh, partly because of political reasons with a failing presidency, um, partly because of stuff related to his age. He he just sincerely believes at this point that the base of the Democratic Party or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is the moral conscience of of politics. And so he thinks siding with them is courageous and right, even if it's bad politics. And I think it's, I honestly believe it's in part because he listens too much to his grandkids um, and defers to them and thinks his grandkids say it, they must speak for all young people. But I mean, I, I don't base that on pure speculation, but I, it's, it's just a theory too. Anyway, I think the problem, so, so but I still have pity for Biden and, and sometimes even sympathy for him because he's one of these guys who does not, He's never had, he's always been incredibly insecure, intellectually insecure. Um, and I think a lot of his verbal tics um, in ways that are both different and similar to Donald Trump's, but a lot of his verbal tics are ways for him to compensate for his intellectual insecurities. Um, also, a lot of his lies are ways <laughs> to compensate for his intellectual insecurities. If you've never seen it, go, I'm sure it's still on YouTube. You know, there was this very famous uh, argument that he got into with a voter 
where Biden just unloads about how he's so much smarter than this voter um, that he was like number one in his class for this and number one in his class for that. And he wrote all of this and he got this scholarship and he had these grades and, and then it, just, it just wasn't true. And it was weirdly specific for something that was just an extended sort of a uh, bunch of falsehoods. But, um, um, and so I think, you know, part of the problem is that he's one of these, he's a bit of a Rodney Dangerfield type in that he always wants respect and he's always felt like he deserved more respect than he got. And, um, and in a weird way, that's a really terrible personality type to be vice president. Because, um, you know, which he was for eight years, because vice presidents, um, by the baked into the cake is this feeling of you're not getting enough respect. Um, and it's, it's really sort of like the, the, you know, I mean, there's the John Nance Gardner thing about a warm bucket of spit. Some people say spit was the PG version of the other, uh, four letter word that rhymes with spit. Um, it's, it's a really flawed job in the constitution. And look, I love the founders. Founders are great. You know, some of this stuff was the result of weird compromises and contingency. And one of them is definitely the, um, um, the vice presidency, which really, um, doesn't have, much power, sorry, John Eastman, and doesn't have much significance other than the fact it's one of the only only two jobs that are um, voted on by the entire country. And yeah, if the president dies in office or is otherwise incapacitated, you get to become president without having to campaign for it. Um, but you know, barring that, splitting ties in the Senate, okay, good for you. Um, that's really about it. And then everything else is at the pleasure of the president. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly recent that vice presidents had significant responsibilities. I think this history starts really with um, Mondale um, in the Carter administration, where Carter being a sort of technocratic um, organizational obsessive, uh, people forget that Carter was so... Uh, micromanaging that he handled the schedules on the white for the White House tennis courts, um, but he gave Mondale real responsibilities, made him more like an actual number two position in the flow. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, Reagan was a little more; it was a little different, but uh, you know, but George H. W. Bush was a real player in that White House. Uh, Opinions differ about Gore, but increasingly over time, the model became more and more that vice presidents mattered in the administrative flow of things and the political flow of things. Um, but they still have just no constitutional power. I'm not going to do a whole history of vice presidents here. But the point is, is that being a vice president to a very charismatic, um, particularly on for your own party, um, and far more historic figure like Barack Obama, you could see how somebody who already had the natural ability to grow giant chips on his shoulders would get even bigger ones. And, um, you know, and people forget just to stay on the vice president thing for two seconds. Uh, you know, since they changed the constitution so that the vice president and the president ran on the same ticket, I mean, talk about a dumb system that we had, you know, prior to what, I think that's 1804, 1800. Um, uh, yeah, so since then, since 18, whatever, uh, only two presidents in the history of the United States were elected straight to the presidency from the vice presidency. Um, it's a much larger number of people. I shouldn't say much larger. It's a larger number of people who had been at one point vice president who later became president or people who were vice president became president because the sitting president resigned or was killed, right? So like, you know, Jerry Ford becomes president, the only president never to be elected. Um, uh, 
you know, Nixon was a vice president under Eisenhower, um, but he fails to win in 60 and has to run again eight years later under his own steam. And part of my theory about why it is so historically rare. Oh, so there are only two, uh, Martin Van Buren and um, George H.W. Bush. And Martin Van Buren's presidency is a very complicated, the Martin Van Buren era is a very complicated time for me to do with this little coffee. But the, but George H.W. Bush, um, there was a real headwind against Bush. People forget this initially, um, in part because he came from the more moderate wing of the Republican Party, even though he spent eight years nailing down the um, support from the right. And he moved right as well over the eight years working under Reagan. Um, but he had this incredible, uh, providential, um, advantage in that he was running against, um, Michael Dukakis, uh, who I always used to joke was kind of like a, like he was designed in an East German lab, um, to be the worst possible candidate to run at a time when Reaganism was particularly popular, when Reagan was seen as a successful presidency. Um, and people wanted a third Reagan term. And so uh, George H.W. Bush got it. But I think one of the reasons why he struggled as president was he could never escape the sort of uh, beta male image that you get when you're vice president. Um, and uh, which is unfair to George H.W. Bush in a lot of ways because he was, he, was, he was a mensch and he was, you know, a, a very serious guy. But anyway, Biden was never a particularly serious guy. Um, I remember a very famous Hollywood type who I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but when Obama picked Biden, um, he made this, you know, joke and it was not meant in a racist way, but he was sort of saying, you know, Biden was picked as the, the white waspy doofus neighbor in the Jeffersons to make Obama seem more serious. Um, and I think Mickey Kaus had a similar point is like a lot of the punditry when Obama picked Biden was like, oh, here's this seasoned political figure to lend gravitas to the ticket. That's exactly wrong. Um, Obama had all the gravitas. Obama was the impressive figure. Um, you know, whether people should have been impressed with him as much as they were and all that is a different conversation. Biden was the comic relief. Biden was the guy who, you know, uh, made Obama seem more serious and steady. Biden also, I think they thought would help with, you know, certain pockets of, of, uh, of either red pockets and blue states or pockets of red states that they might be able to flip. Um, but Biden wasn't, wasn't a serious guy. And the one person who, look, I, I know lots of people like Biden and lots of people who hate Biden. I know lots of people who are indifferent to Biden, but I think everybody would agree with me uh, on this sort of, at least at the very superficial level, which was that Biden um, was never perceived as um, as serious and statesmanlike as he perceived himself to be. And, um, and then so you get him into the, the White House and it's very difficult to not have being president of the United States go to your head. You know, they, you know, the Marine band plays hail to the chief. Everyone salutes. Um, you're the most important person. I, you know, people like to say the president of the United States, is the most important person in the world, perfectly defensible position to have. Um, I, I guess it's probably true. Um, but at the same time, it's, incredibly true it's hyper true if you're the president of the united states because you're the president of the united states and everywhere you go you have this massive entourage of the state and everybody's hanging on your every word and um so and i know we talked a lot about how when biden got you know spun up by these historians doris kearns goodwin and 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 michael i think it was michael beschloss and and some others that he should go big and go for a new, new deal and all this kind of stuff, which I think was among the dumbest pieces of political advice anyone could possibly have given Biden. Um, a, a, according to a lot of reporting, and I think this is also in the, um, the 
Jonathan Martin book, uh, you know, the thing that really sort of pinged him was you could be bigger than Obama. You could go bigger than Obama. All the progressive wing at the Democratic Party had come to conclude that Obama was too cautious and too reserved and didn't swing for the fences enough. And you could be bigger than Obama. And like for Biden, who has these sort of thin skin, chip on his shoulder kind of attitude, um, who spent eight years um, as a second banana to Obama, uh, you could you could see why that would light him up. And so this just sort of brings me back to the Dana. The reason I bring all this up uh, in this very long-winded way is um, I think the the what Dana Milbank misses is that nobody listens. Nobody, nobody. He does. You know, Biden has never had a cult of personality. Never. Obama, yes. Trump, yes, alas. Reagan, for sure. George W. Bush, for sure. George H.W. Bush, no. He was a one-term president. Um, Jimmy Carter, mm, I think there's a real movement behind Carter in the initial days, but then he just couldn't sell it. But that's a different one. Uh, Jerry Ford, of course not. Um, Biden has none of that charisma. He has, there's a great scene in the Sopranos where, um, junior Soprano is trying to make a move on Tony and he, uh, he sends this guy to sort of sell one of the other capos on taking out Tony and he fails and he says, ah, he couldn't sell it. He just couldn't sell it. Right. The strategy doesn't matter if you just keep going with this other guy doesn't make sense. If you just can't sell it, Biden can't sell. He can't. And, and this, when he was um, running, this was kind of a, a benefit for him is that he just sort of seemed like the guy we all knew, the brand we all knew and pretty harmless. But as president, um, he can't move the needle. And in fairness, few presidents can move the needle. I, I, I remember making this point about Obamacare when Obama was president is that he gave something like a speech a week trying to sell Obamacare and he never made it popular. Um, but Biden's, I think, is a special case because it's, you know, let's put it this way. The Obama people, the people who liked Obama thought he was super impressive and super persuasive. Um, he, you know, Obama had a reputation of extreme persuasiveness and gravitas within the Democratic Party. Biden doesn't. And so he can say the words, but it just doesn't, it, 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 it just goes right past people and people feel like, did he say anything at all? And, and I think part of it is like, you know, he's, he spent, he was sort of a Dwight Schrute from the office kind of personality. You know, when he was vice president, he was sort of, you know, I'm, I'm assistant regional manager and, and Michael Scott will always be like, no, you're the assistant to the regional manager. And, and then he got to be boss, um, and it kind of went to his head and, um, and he's never really appreciated that, like, you know, I mean, I guess the way, the right way to put it is he was a Michael Scott kind of personality who thought he was much more serious and everyone took him much more seriously. Then he spent eight years in a Dwight Schrute job. And then he finally got to be, um, the boss and, um, and he just, he just can't sell it. He can't sell himself. Um, he can't move people in, within his own party, never mind, you know, in the country at large. And that means he's just getting pulled around by events outside of his control. And I think, you know, so far he's done some things that I think, you know, are pretty good. And I think he's done a lot of things that are pretty bad and a lot more things that are just ineffectual. And it, it seems to spread throughout the entire administration. I mean, their messaging about calling things like the Putin tax hike um, is just so stupid. Um, and so was his hectoring about uh, the greed of gas station owners and oil companies and all of that. And, you know, I've written about this and I talk about it a bunch, so we don't need to dwell on it. But it's a nice way to get out of this rabbit hole I got myself in on the Biden stuff. Um, uh, I joked about this and it completely fell flat. Um, on the dispatch podcast, but, um, I think the point is right. You know, Biden should congratulate the oil companies and the gas station owners for their incredible generosity because now prices are going down 
And if prices going up was simply the result of greed and price gouging um, and all that, which, you know, is what the White House and what Biden said and what Elizabeth Warren said and all that, when it goes down, it must be because a new philanthropic spirit has taken over the oil companies. It can't have anything to do with, I don't know, international global commodity pricing or, um, or a decline in demand because of the looming recession. It must be because of the moral exhortation and persuasion of these malefactors of great wealth who have agreed to lower prices out of the goodness of their hearts and nothing else. Because if the reason the prices went up was because they were all greedy and bad, then when they go down, that must be because they are generous and kind. And of course, it's all garbage. Where to go from here? Oh, so a couple other big news things this week. Uh, Boris Johnson was quitting. This morning, Shinzo Abe, uh, former uh, prime minister of, of, of Japan, was assassinated. Um, I don't have a lot to say about the Shinzo Abe thing, although uh, John Pedorit sent me this piece from the AP that is just amazingly nasty and biased about um, about Abe in ways that are kind of shocking, made it past the editors. Because um, um, it's just sort of gratuitous and overseas, and it feels like it's through a American political um, prism trying to explain Japanese politics, but I'm not going to read you through the whole thing. Uh, maybe we'll put in the show notes or something. I don't know. Um, but um, it did make me think just briefly that, you know, it's interesting. Like, where is the cutoff between being murdered and assassinated? Is it really just a function of fame, um, of political fame? You know, when like some movie star is murdered we generally don't say they were assassinated. I can't remember the last time like a Fortune 50 uh, CEO type was murdered, but generally you wouldn't say they were assassinated. But when, uh, you know, and, and keep in mind, Shinzo Abe was retired from politics, so he wasn't a sitting politician. kind of get it when they're in office, you call it assassination, because that has much more of a political context. But when you're out of office and you get murdered by some freak, I just think it's interesting. I'm sure there's, there, I'm not sure, I shouldn't say I'm sure. I would not be surprised if there's a good explanation for this. And maybe I should have looked it up before starting to yap here. Um, but I just think it's sort of interesting when we use assassinated and when we don't. Um, and like, I, mean, I can't say that I am striving to reach a level of celebrity or, uh, infamy or whatever, where if I am murdered, people say, will say I'm a, I was assassinated, but, um, I am sort of curious about it. Maybe I'll look into it. Uh, but on the Boris Johnson thing, I also talked about this on the dispatch podcast a little bit. I might write about it today. I don't know. Um, I thought it was interesting. You know, I listened to these, econ this, this podcast from the economist, the intelligence podcast a lot. And I listened to it for the, uh, for the immediate reaction to the Johnson resignation, I guess this was yesterday. And, um, excuse me, I think it was, um, the, the, one of the editors of the economist made a really interesting point about how, so Johnson brought new voters. You know, I, I think a lot of these comparisons that Trump are really overwrought in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, so I'm not going to get into all that, but I think that the, that it's fair to say Johnson brought in a lot of new voters to, uh, the Tories. He, you know, it, 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 they're somewhat similar to sort of the Reagan Democrat, um, uh, you know, Obama Trump voter types, you know, people who were traditionally labor voters, they flipped and voted for Johnson. Um, and, or they voted, I should put it this way, they voted for the Tories because of Johnson. And this is an important distinction because in the UK, you do not vote for personalities. I mean, obviously it gets a little muddy in the, in the psychology and the, and the political reality, but as a matter of law and institutional function, you vote for the party, not the person. 
And when the party wins, the queen or the monarch asks the party to form a government and then they select their leader and blah, 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 blah. And part of this guy's point about what Johnson was arguing was that he had a mandate from voters for himself that was um, in tension with the what was best for the party. And um, in the, you know, for everyone who hates the electoral college, I should, you know, I should point out the irony here is that you know, there are all these people who are envious of how the parliamentary systems of Europe are more democratic. Like, yes and no. I mean, and I mean that sincerely, like in some ways they are much more democratic and in some ways they aren't more democratic, but, um, or to put it this way, in some ways they're not entirely democratic either. So if you're voting for a party, that means the party is essentially functioning like the electoral college is here in the sense that the party picks the leader. You're not voting directly for a president. Um, and the prime minister's uh, power and authority derives entirely from the votes of members of parliament, not from the votes of the British people. And no one says, oh, my God, that's so terrible. It's undemocratic. Um, because it's perfectly fine. It's a perfectly fine way to run a country. I mean, it's got, it's got pluses. It's got minuses. But it's democratic. It's small r Republican. It's fine, right? I mean, this is one of my great peeves of people who talk about the Electoral College um, as if it's this great travesty that violates our democracy and the democratic will of the people. And, yeah. and you know, go, go look at how they pick, like, the head of Germany. Um, go look at how they pick the heads of almost any other country in Europe that is supposedly so much more enlightened. There are always some intermediary institutions, either a party or a branch of government or a second round of voting, you know, there's, or, or all three. I mean, like, again, how they pick the uh, prime minister of, of Germany, it is, it is bizarre how muddy and weird and how dissolved the actual franchise of individual voters become because they're Certain voters, you, vo you vote for like a party for, for two positions of the parliament or the Reichstag. Um, but then you vote directly for another. And it's all, I mean, I, I'm going to butcher it, but it's, it is uh, direct democracy. It's not, right? And anyway, so what Johnson, according to this guy from The Economist, was pointing out was that he was kind of making an American presidential argument. You could also say a little bit he was making a French presidential argument because the French presidential system is a little closer to the American presidential system with obviously important differences. Um, but he was basically saying, I, by, uh, Boris Johnson was basically saying, I have a mandate from the people and that mandate is important too. And all of you sausage-spined cowards, or as he calls it, the herd, in the party who don't want to work for me are missing the point that I have legitimacy beyond your support as an institutional matter. And I don't know how vociferously he made this case. Um, you could hear strains of it in his resignation speech. I don't think we've seen the last of Boris Johnson for good or for ill. Um, but I thought it was an interesting point. Um, because in America, that argument that the president has a direct mandate from the people um, is sort of taken for granted and is part and parcel of uh, American politics. And I think it's wildly overdone and I got a huge problem with it. And I don't think that presidents really, that, that I don't say, I want to say that presidents never have mandates. I just want to say that the vast majority of times they claim to have a mandate. It's just hot garbage nonsense. Um, you know, like particularly it's always fun when the activist types point to like number 13 on the, the 25 things some presidential candidates said they wanted to do if elected. And then the president gets elected, you know, because the other candidate was a boob and they say, see, he has a mandate to uh, make these reforms to post-secondary education debt relief or whatever. And it's just like, there's no man, no, no voters were voting for that. Um, you know, I, I think you can make 
definitely make the case that FDR had a mandate for the New Deal, um, in part because pro-New Deal candidates in both parties won up and down the ballots for several years and over the course of several elections. And that is a really good sense of where the American people are. But Biden had no mandate for this new New Deal stuff. He wasn't running on a new New Deal stuff. He wasn't saying we're going to be bigger than Obama on this kind of thing. And yeah, I know he had crap on his website that was more left wing than I would like, and blah, 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 blah. That's not how he ran. That is not the signal that he sent. Um, a lot of that stuff there was just to sort of protect his um, left flank if he ever got attacked. Um, but anyway, but presidents are the only people who are elected by the entire country because we don't have a parliamentary system. We have a presidential system. And in our system, that confers a sense of national legitimacy to the presidency that doesn't to um, pretty much any other politician in our government. And the thing I think is sort of interesting is that Johnson, um, you know, allegedly looking enviously on how Trump, you know, broke the system for his own, you know, self-aggrandizement and, and self-promotion, used the presidential system to do that. Um, in America, lots and lots of people want us to live in a parliamentary system. I mean, they wouldn't express it that way, but they think that's the way the system should work. A lot of people think that's the way the system does work. Um, I know I'm kind of a broken record on this, but like, go back and watch the early debates in the Democratic primary. Um, one, you know, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, you, can, you know, Aunt, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, you can go down the list. And I've written about this a couple of times. They would say on day one of my presidency, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. You know, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, uh, I'm just paraphrasing here. Oh, and Bernie Sanders did this all the time too. You know, and I'm just paraphrasing Warren and Sanders, but you know, the gist of it was on day one, we are going to seize the means of production and liberate the proletariat class. Um, and like, you know, Kamala Harris talked about getting the guns day one or issuing some, you know, order to, and things. I just, our system doesn't work that way. You don't, get major societal change, you're not supposed to at least, um, without buy-in from Congress, um, without laws being written. We're a nation of laws, and laws are supposed to be written by elected officials and, and legislatures. And um, in, a, in the British system, the prime minister, once they get elected, so long as they have maintained the support and confidence of the majority of the parliament, can do lots of stuff really quickly and really fast. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people who want more activist government are very envious of uh, parliamentary systems. And, um, and I, anyway, I just think it's, it's interesting because the sort of ironic way in which the sort of populist party in the UK looks, it, at least some figures in it are looking longingly at the presidential system and a lot of people in our presidential system are looking longingly at the parliamentary system. The only other point, which again, I know I made on Dispatch Live, um, so I'm mean, not Dispatch Live, on the Dispatch Podcast, um, I'll just be very quick about is I think there's a lot of fairly dumb commentary about how, you know, politicians in the UK have more character, um, how they are, you know, willing to stand up to Trump. Um, I mean, they're willing to stand up to their own leaders, but not to, but in America, they're not, um, look at all the resignations, you know, that prompted Boris Johnson to leave, um, versus all the people who waited until at least January 6th or never resigned at all. And I mean, I get the point at the superficial level and yeah, I mean, I, there's not no merit to it, but the part of it is that part of the reason why I think it's sort of a dumb thing is that when you have completely different institutional systems, I shouldn't say completely different. If you have very different um, institutional systems about how you run your government, the way politicians uh, actualize their self-interest will work with the incentive structures set by those institutions. And so I, I can almost guarantee you 
like, like, so in America, there are only two ways to get rid of a president. I mean, um, legally and constitutionally, um, before the end of his term. Right. So really there are three, if you just want to say you vote him out of office, but the other two I was getting at are the 25th amendment, which is kind of a convoluted hot mess requires passing around these letters and taking the vote. And then it's three weeks of this and blah, blah, blah. It's really no great shakes. Um, and it doesn't really get rid of a president anyway. It just sort of puts him in the penalty box for, you know, for a limited period of time and then he can get out. Um, and the other one is impeachment and impeachment is really, really hard. And I kind of think impeachment is now essentially a dead letter in American politics as a way of actually removing a president um, because of the legacy of the last three impeachments. But that's a conversation for another day. Um, I think that the, you know, the, but if there were, I almost guarantee you, there were moments um, throughout the Trump presidency where you probably could have gotten a majority of the cabinet to resign um, from their jobs if they thought it would make Mike Pence president, if they thought it would make Trump go away. Uh, I am less confident, but not, I'm not, I'm not, I can see it going both ways. I think there were probably moments where you probably could have gotten a vote of no confidence, which is a parliamentary thing, you know, um, in Trump during the four years of his presidency. And it would have passed if the result of a no confidence vote was to get him to leave office. But in our system, those kinds of protests are wholly performative. Right, they they do not have the ability to solve the problem um, as you see it, right? You know, so you leave, he stays, he still gets to finish out his term. What exactly have you done? And I'm not saying that people shouldn't have resigned in the Trump years. Some should, some some shouldn't have. My only point is that the way the British system works is that the party can get rid of a guy from office if. They need to. Um, and uh, and the queen can, I assume, do all sorts of stuff as well because the queen um, is the head of state. In America, the head of government and the head of state are both the president. In, in the UK and in most parliamentary systems, the head of state and the head of government are different people. Um, and, and when you have different rules of the game, ambitious politicians will... Um, uh, take different paths to do what they're doing. And so I just, I, 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 look, I, I think my record is pretty good on criticizing Republican support for Trump, but I just think a lot of this is just really um, facile and glib uh, and opportunistic comparisons that don't actually work. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the British politics, which I go in and out of being a close follower of, it's been a while since I was a close follower of British politics, but I do, I am, a, I'm definitely an Anglophile. Uh, Michael Gove, who was fired by Johnson um, shortly before he was a cabinet official, um, you know, he was, he was in charge of leveling up, which I gather is a, a Britishism for um, closing income inequality and, and uh, lifting the economic tide. I mean, I, I can't remember what his actual the official name of his portfolio was, but, um, I think, uh, but anyway, I, I'm, I've met Gove a few times through AI things and a million years ago, Gove hired me to be a semi-regular columnist for the times of London when he was an editor at the times of London. Um, and so I'll just say having no better arguments than, self-interest and, and, and fondness for the guy. I'd love to see him become, um, a prime minister just cause it'd be kind of cool to say, I know the prime minister of England. Um, and I'm not saying that we're close friends or anything like that, but I just, I think it would be cool. Where are we on time? Okay. So, uh, where else to go? Um, oh, the EU condemned America's 
condemned the Supreme American Supreme Court for the Dobbs decision on Roe. I think it's just collective performative jackassery. Um, but it does raise this disconnect we've talked about a few times on here where most of the countries of the EU have abortion regimes, abortion, you know, bans that are remarkably similar, um, you know, plus or minus a week or two to the bans upheld in Mississippi under Dobbs. Um, and it's just one of these great examples of how the sort of the cultural politics of these kinds of debates swamps the, um, uh, the actual policy details. The other day there was a, uh, tweet by Planned Parenthood, which, um, I just thought was ridiculous. And I responded to and made a lot of people angry, uh, where Planned Parenthood said any bans or restrictions, I can't remember, remember on abortion are extreme. The context of it was like any limit on the access to abortion is extreme. And this, you know, in a nutshell is sort of, you know, lays bare the political reasons why Roe ultimately got overturned is because, um, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of, that's probably a little exaggerated, but it's why abortion politics became so polarized and screwed up because to say that a, let's put it this way. And, and I, I, I'm fully aware, as I said in my response to it on Twitter, fully aware that this is a, um, you know, what do they call it? You know, um, argumentum ad absurdum, right? I'm, I'm taking things to an extreme where I'm being hyperbolic to make a point, right? But if you say that any restriction on abortion at any stage of a pregnancy until full delivery of birth, um, is extreme, then you're saying that, um, an abortion for a fully healthy, uh, baby at nine months or eight months and 28 days that is fully viable outside the womb and healthy, that so long as it's sort of within the confines of a woman's body, that there cannot be any restrictions on killing that, that baby. Um, and if you think otherwise, you're taking an extreme position. And the simple fact is, is that I don't know any pro-choicers outside of uh people who are really just this is their this is like their 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 religion in a certain way i remember i, I knew a lot of serious pro-choice activists in my college years but like most pro-choicers i know the vast majority vast 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 majority would say rightly that's a ridiculous argument right because first of all those kinds of abortions are incredibly rare to which i say Absolutely true. Let's just say there's one a year. Um, and that may even be a high number. I don't know. Like, but like I'm making a, a point about logic here and about politics and about symbolism. Let's say it's one a year that happened. And the state of Montana says you can't do that. If, you know, but for waiting for five more minutes to deliver the baby, um, um, the, you know, the baby while it's still in the birth canal cannot be killed, um, for reasons not having to do with, you know, the, the life of the mother essentially. Right. You know, so basically banning, um, infanticide, um, in utero infanticide, right. You can say that ban is wrong. You can say that ban is a purely symbolic thing that is a waste of everybody's time. Um, you can say, that it's performative boob bait. You can make all sorts of arguments about how, since that almost never happens, it's silly to spend all this energy passing that law. I'm open to that. I'm not necessarily persuaded by it, but I'm open to it. You can't say that that position is extreme without telling people something about your own views on abortion. Um, you know, the, the, everyone likes to point out, you know, uh, Megan McArdle was doing this, you know, last week on, on, on here that there are going to be a whole bunch of really difficult cases coming forward that make 
life difficult for Republicans and pro-lifers. And I agree with that entirely. Victims of rape are going to be denied the ability to get an abortion in some state. and It's going to be bad PR, right? Um, victims of incest. I mean, for all I know, that this is happening already, right? Um, that's hard for pro-lifers to defend, and it's going to put them on defense. Perfectly willing to, to, to concede that point, because it's politically true. What a lot of pro-choice people, well, abortion rights people, don't appreciate is that not all of the politically inconvenient examples are on the pro-life side, right? There are some examples that certainly in, when expressed hypothetically, as are most of these hard cases, you know, in terms of the debates over the last 50 years, because the Roe regime, you know, basically, you know, froze everything in place. But like saying a fully viable fetus, you know, in the eighth, ninth month of pregnancy, um, should be able to be aborted if there's no pressing medical need of any kind. Um, that's extreme. And defending that position is extreme. And in fact, all of those jabbering jackwads at the EU parliament who voted to condemn the United States would easily concede that is ex that it's extreme in the context of their own politics. Because most of those countries look more like Mississippi in terms of its abortion policy than look like New York in terms of its abortion policy. And, um, um, and this inability, and this is where I think the media bias problem is, is, a, a, is a real hindrance to finding a national compromise on this stuff. Because a lot of, and you know, again, I, it's weird. I spent my formative years growing up in New York and going to college where I was only surrounded by uh, supporters of abortion rights, you know, um, to the extent anyone talked about that kind of thing. Um, my first 20 something years on earth. Um, and because I worked at national review, uh, much of the last 30 years, um, I've been surrounded by far more pro-lifers than, than pro-choicers. And I follow the journalism of this through osmosis for a long time. And the simple fact is, is that there are reporters who basically take stenography from Planned Parenthood. There are reporters who basically got into journalism to defend abortion rights. And they're much more prominent in media organizations than you think, both, both at the management level and at the rep repertorial level. And the way they talk about this stuff mirrors that Planned Parenthood argument, that it's extreme to limit abortion at all at any stage of pregnancy for any reason whatsoever. And despite 50 years of that kind of journalism, despite 50 years of row, 49 years of row, the American people aren't persuaded by that. The new Harvard, Hartford uh, poll, I can't remember, it was Harvard and somebody else came out and it found that 55% of Americans are against overturning row, but something like 70 something percent think that a abortion ban um, or abortion restrictions after 15 weeks um, are desirable. Well, there you have it, right? I mean, that's, it's, Roe is this symbol of something that is disconnected with the policy preferences and policy realities that, where you can actually find a compromise in this country. And this is, I'm not arguing my personal preferences here one way or the other. Um, um, I'm just saying that like the, the way the media covers this stuff, the way Democrats talk about this stuff, the way pro-abortion rights people talk about this stuff is, uh, gives so much oxygen and room to people who want to strict abortion because their, their official position is much more extreme than they realize. And just calling other people extreme for disagreeing with them doesn't have the power that they think it does. Um, all right. So almost done. Uh, I, I, I think I should probably reserve this topic for glop. Um, but I should at least, I want to talk about it briefly here because I, I, I want better feedback. Um, so what prompted, so I, I tweeted yesterday, let me see if I can find it and I'll read it to you because it's, I think it's a, um, it's, it's a, the wording is 
important. Okay. I tweeted yesterday, last night or yesterday, whatever. Um, question for political nerds slash movie buffs. What movie, what movie or movies do you think actually nail how politics works? Not just big themes, but the little details that often drive you crazy because there was no reason to get them wrong. And I think everybody kind of knows what I'm talking about, about, you know, about the things, like if you're an expert on something, I don't mean like I have a PhD in it and um, world's foremost authority on the mating habits of, of red pandas or anything like that. I just mean like it's your job. Like you live in this world on a day-to-day basis, whether you're a plumber, an electrician, a lawyer, whatever. Um, um, when you see your profession or your vocation um, uh, or your hobby or whatever in movies, it's amazing how often they get stuff wrong, right? And, I, and again, I'm not talking about the, the you know, power corrupts kind of stuff. Um, I'm talking about like just the little details about how a bill becomes a law in my, in the case that I'm talking about, or like how the executive branch works or, um, in like newspaper movies about how deadlines work, about like how people, you know, deal with copy. Um, you know, I have lots of lawyer friends who love to point out all the problems with various lawyer movies. And it's, I think it's hilarious how so many of them think that my cousin Vinny is one of the best movies to explain various legal principles and procedures um, ever made. Um, I think, and again, I'm not, anyway, it's, 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 it's a, it's a peeve of mine. And the reason why I came anyway, so like I have two peeves now. Uh, the first peeve is, well, the second peeve is that oh, the responses were kind of disappointing. Um, I got some great movie and TV recommendations. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they were thoughtful and interesting, but they missed the little details thing and went straight to answering the question about big themes, which wasn't my question. My question was like, what's a movie that gets that you can actually tell the person who wrote it or directed it actually understands the, the nitty gritty details of, of politics. And I mean, there's some fine answers, whatever. A lot of people, you know, talk about Veep, which I actually think is a, the TV series, which I actually think is a, is better on politics than a lot of people realize. Um, but of course it's a comedy. And so sometimes it just, it, 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 it exposes truths through exaggeration, which is fine for a comedy to do. A lot of people said Parks and Rec gets a lot of things right about local politics. Um, and I think that's true. But I also think Parks and Rec, which I like, um, because it wants to see it, because it casts itself sort of as a microcosm of national politics as a way to, um, uh, you know, sort of make fun of, of national political issues. It also got a lot of things about local politics, like wildly wrong. I mean, like the number of times, you know, they talked about putting a poll in the field, you know, about, you know, about the poll ratings for various like council races in Pawnee, Indiana. Um, it used to drive me crazy. I I'm, I'm perfectly fine conceding that, um, like I'm, I got a weird hang up about this kind of stuff. I'm not saying that my position is right. Getting the little details right in everything from cop movies to legal things, uh, is nice, but it's not essential to the drama. It's not essential to the thing. The more important thing is to get the big things right and just be plausible, right? Just be, um, not to have the little screw ups get in the way. So I'm not trying to say, like, I mean, like, like I'm conceding the point to people who say, look, it's just a movie or look, it's just a TV show. You're right. I'm in the wrong, but I'll just tell you, like, I'm weirdly a little obsessive about this sometimes. Um, like I hate the final speech in the American president where, you know, Michael Douglas is talking about, I can't remember what it's called. It's like called something like white house resolution one, you know, like, and again, 
getting back to this parliamentary thing, this idea that somehow the White House introduces legislation um, is just sort of ridiculous. And the whole, we're going to get the guns speech is, um, it's fine for political rhetoric in a movie. Um, it's even believable for political rhetoric in real life, but it's just not actually how like stuff works. Some of the other stuff in American president is perfectly believable at how they, you know, they sort of tally votes and trade support for this trade support for that. Some of that stuff is actually pretty good. Similarly in the West wing, some of that stuff is pretty good. Um, but, uh, um, anyway, like what got me on this is I've been watching the boys, which is this Amazon prime show, which I want to be very clear. If really gratuitous violence and sexual, um, grossness bothers you, um, and you are not particularly, and, or you are not particularly a fan of very dark comedies that are comic book superhero themed, do not watch this show. Like I do not want, and I particularly do not watch it with your kids. Um, some of it is just like really gross. Um, um, and would make me incredibly uncomfortable to watch with my daughter and my daughter's 19. Um, that said, I love the show. I think it's very funny, very well done for what it is. Yes, it's gratuitous, but the gratuitousness is a feature, not a bug. Anyway, I was watching this thing and just to set it up um, a little bit, there's a character who was a member of Congress um, who, at least according to the show, I looked it up and apparently, you know, there are facts entered in off screen, but like, I got the impression that they were trying to say that there was a member of Congress who was also the head of an executive branch agency at the same time. And the reason I realized that I have a problem here is that I was perfectly fine with the dudes flying with the dudes with, with heroes being able to blow up people's heads with their minds about, uh, guys having sex with octopuses because they were sort of, uh, creatures of the sea and they were telepathic with them. Um, I had no problem with any of the gross science, uh, you know, the gross uh, sex stuff or the incredibly implausible superhero stuff. But I just got really angry at the idea that somehow they would put a member of Congress in charge of an executive branch agency because that just doesn't happen. And this is sort of when I realized I have a problem. So I'm just being clear about that. Now, apparently I looked it up. They, on some Wicca, and they say that, that, that this person is no longer in Congress and that's why they're head of the executive branch agency. Um, but at least when I was watching it, they didn't make that clear. And um, anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm admitting I have a problem with this kind of stuff. And I will do this kind of thing often where I will get really angry about stupid crap that doesn't work in movies, that doesn't make sense in movies while letting the big things flow over me. Um, and, um, so anyway, I, what I'm looking for is examples of movies that get the little things right. And we can, we can expand it out beyond just politics stuff. Cause I, I just don't looking at the 600 plus responses to this tweet. I doubt there are many political movies left or political TV shows left that someone hasn't nominated. Um, and you should look through the thread. We'll put it in the show notes, but you should look through the thread. You know, there are some good movie recommendations in there and TV recommendations in there. Um, but like, uh, what, what are a movie or TV show that gets, um, you know, your profession, right? Whether it's journalism, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, electrical engineering, whether it's, you know, uh, if you work at NASA, that'd be interesting. If you're a cop, that would be interesting, you know, lawyer, whatever. Um, uh, um, you know, I mean, I, I think, Office Space actually got a lot of important and interesting and funny things right, um, but obviously it got, you know, took liberties in other ways about what it's like to work in one of those sort of, you know, office park places. Anyway, let me know what you think. Um, I got to go um, write a G file and then uh, deal with some personal stuff. Um, and uh, I'm around for most of the next week. And then I'm taking the following week off, but I'll probably still do the solo podcast because I can do that from the road pretty easily, but we'll put other stuff in the can. Um, so your podcasting 
habits should not be disrupted, at least not by me. Um, thanks to everybody who became a member of the Dispatch uh, community in response to my pitch letter. Um, I wish more people did, but a nice number did, and I'm really grateful for you. Grateful for you doing it. Um, and now I'm in this awkward position of simultaneously wanting and not wanting the response to Steve's forthcoming letter to um, do better than mine because I have a fiduciary and um, you know interest and a, just a big stake in the success of the dispatch. And so, of course, I want his to succeed. Um, but uh, you know, on the other hand, I want the bragging rights to say that I did better than him. So we'll see what happens. Um, and uh, that's all I got, and I'll talk to you next time.